Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to Radio Islam. I'm your host, Tariq Al Amin, and we're broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, and we're streaming at WCEV1450.com. Now, for those of you who are new to the Radio Islam family, welcome. Thanks for tuning in. Keep up with us by following and liking our pages on social media. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. And also subscribe to the podcast wherever you get yours at. Never miss out on another edition of Radio Islam. So if you're on uh, SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn, or Google Play, you will find us at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. All right, family, I hope that uh, everyone has had a great weekend, purposeful, uh, feel re-energized. For those of you who have had to, you know, some folks work on the weekend, right? Uh, But for those of you who worked on the weekend, hope it wasn't too bad, you know. And if it's just your regular thing, I hope it was still a great weekend, right? Because it's a great thing, even if you're working, it's a great thing to have a job, Uh, especially when you look out at people uh, I've got to share this. Uh, and this, I think this is probably what was going on in, in the back of my mind, just as I opened up like that. Last night, as I was, uh, I went out to the, uh, to Home Depot, uh, by the way, which was closed because I forget uh, Sundays, <clears throat> excuse me, Sundays, typically uh, everything is shut down a little earlier. But anyway, on my way to the store, I went past a bus depot, you know, one of those pace, uh, park and ride, you know, you drive in, park your car, get on the bus. And there are two bus shelters uh, at this at this um, park and ride. And in one of the shelters, I noticed a, I couldn't tell if it was a man or a woman, but I saw a figure inside of the shelter laid down on the, uh, on the bench, covers blankets on top of them. And right next to them, right next to them at their head was was two bags, you know, two bags of luggage, you know, clothing. And my heart just, it just went out. I mean, I really, it just really went out. And what I, what I really can't come to grips with is that there is homeless. There's, there's homelessness in a society where there is so much available, uh, where we have abandoned homes and, uh, we have, and, and, and really when you think about it, obviously when we have foreclosed homes, we have people being evicted. These are the homeless, right? Everybody does not have a backup plan. They don't have a support system in place for them to be able to go and maybe stay with a relative, stay with a friend. Or if they do that, that gets old, People come to the point where they have to make a decision uh, where it becomes a drain on them. People don't, simply don't have the resources to say, I want, I'm want, i going to be able to take care of you uh, if, if it's just an individual, right? I also think about, I can't help but think about those families that find themselves uh, evicted and then having to rely upon the kindness, uh, the compassion, and the support of family, friends, and sometimes families are separated, oftentimes. And I I know of this, you know, I I can speak to this um, with personal knowledge that I've seen this. 
you know, uh, alhamdulillah, praise be to God that I've never, that that has never been my, my personal experience, but I have seen it. But I could not help but, um, I could not help but do the only thing I could at that at that point was to was to pray for the person, but it just speaks to a a problem that we are not we're not addressing that we have not found solutions to, and that because it has existed for so long and it is justified with this idea that if you can't pay, then you can't stay, that we have really grown callous uh and just the, the lack of the lack of compassion, the lack of empathy, it is uh, it is evident in the lack of movement, the lack of movement, the lack of a real solution to, uh, to to the problem of homelessness. So one of the things that I do, and I guess this is all in, in the same vein, it's probably a good uh, segue. My uh, an organization that I, I founded with my wife, uh, bridging the gap about. Um, well, it's been in existence for about 10 years, but one of the programs, one of our flagship programs is the lunch pad. And it serves a few different, um, a few different purposes. One of them, which, you know, if anybody sees it or comes to it, you realize it is to, obviously it is to provide uh, food and clothing and goodwill, right? It is, it is, it is that that's its essential purpose, right? Uh, on, on the on the face, if a face of it, if you look at it, you see, okay, well, they get together on the first and third Saturday of every month, and they give out clothing, they give out food, uh, give out books, we give out uh, sometimes uh, small furniture, and that's the obvious thing. That's the obvious part. Now, the not so obvious part of it is because we're a five hundred one c three. We also are one of those organizations that are uh, eligible to uh, fulfill community service hours. And whether those be mandated by the court or it be simply as a part of a, uh, a student's requirement for, you know, for, for, for school. Uh, if it's something that people are trying to do uh, where they're trying to pad their, I shouldn't say pad, but they want to show that they are community-minded, they're service-minded. So we're one of those kind of organizations that, that students have been able to come to, that those who also do have court-mandated um, service hours, that they can come to and uh, fulfill those hours. So that's that's that part of it, right? So what happens is there is a sensitizing to the condition of people that may not fit the same socioeconomic status uh, or level that an individual might find themselves a part of. Now, in, in, some, circumstance, in some circumstances, it is people who identify with the condition of those they are serving because they come from the same space and they want to, they're looking for an opportunity to, to come in and give back. All right, so that's, that's, one, that's one aspect. Uh, the other aspect is, and this is the part, this is the part that I really love. Uh, it is being able to bring diverse groups of folks who are not familiar with uh, the black community um, to bring them in 
into a Muslim setting because we do the lunch pad primarily. We've done it almost exclusively out of Meshed al-Taqwa uh, on the southeast side of Chicago. And it is located, you know, it's in the South Shore uh, area. And there there are needs there. So it is one of those underserved uh, communities or improperly served, right? Because there are resources sometimes that are uh, that are available, but they are they are deployed not always in the most efficient or the most effective manner. So we look to try to do our part to to serve the community. So that diversity that I'm talking about, um, one of our oldest partners uh, has been DePaul uh, University, their Muslim Student Association called UMA. They come in with us the first and third Saturday of every month. And they've been coming in for about the past four four years, uh, and they are under the um, faculty leadership of the uh, Muslim chaplain um, Abdul Malik Ryan. And um, and there's always, and I'll, I'll tell you at the very beginning when this group came in, and I got I have to tell you as far as the as far as sensitizing folks who are not used to a particular uh, space or environment, this is a group largely of uh, it's a very diverse group. Right. But there it's a South Asian Arab. Uh, There's some there's some African-American, but primarily South Asian Arab, uh, maybe Syrian. um, But suffice to say, I I guess as I keep going down the line, non-black, non-African-American. So they don't they don't live in these spaces and and probably don't have relationships with people that come from these spaces. Uh, so what has happened is is that over the, over time, this coming together to pack lunches and sort clothing, uh, it has not it has not just been about the the manual activity, right? It has also been the camaraderie that has developed internally between the this masjid in an African American community. Uh, and a group of young people, non-African Americans, different ethnicities, but you know, primarily um, all being Muslim, we do have. Uh, there are non-Muslim volunteers that come in, uh, but serving a community which is largely uh, African American, uh, Hispanic, uh, and 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 definitely non-Muslim. But there has there has been a sensitizing. Uh, and a relationship building, a familiarity that would not have existed if not for something as simple as being able to come in and pack lunches and pass them out. So this idea, this 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 idea of, of serving, but also allowing us to use service as a way to connect uh, ourselves, it's, it's something that has been extremely important. Um, and it's also allowed for it allows for 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 people, and and I think it's just really I think it's really important for students, college students in particular, because these are the people uh, to be in these kind of spaces, to be to have that kind of uh, sens- uh, sensitization, uh, because it doesn't necessarily mean that they were without empathy. No, not at all. Right? Obviously, the I shouldn't say obviously, but these are people. Who who care about service? Who care about humanity? The issue comes uh, when we we talk about addressing 
concerns like homelessness. The issue comes in realizing that these people who are homeless, that they that they come from a community, that they did not begin homeless. And 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 when you see them coming from a community, then you begin to look for solutions in that community. You begin to look for solutions of ways to develop or serve in the community, right? You begin to look for, uh, you know, uh, whether it's a house, uh, multi-unit, you begin to look for ways that you can use your expertise, you can use your access, your your privilege, dare I say, uh, for the benefit, <clears throat> for the benefit of those uh, who lack it. Now, there's a lot of, there's a lot of joy. There's a lot of joy in, uh, in what we do. And this really is probably, it's one of the, the things that I look forward to most on the weekends. And it is coming. I don't look forward to getting up early, but I look forward to once we're, once we're there, once we're together and once we're joking around and, uh, and and just enjoying one another's company and know that we're doing it not for uh not for any personal uh aggrandizement or any personal benefit or for someone to look at us in a particular way but we're doing it because we know this is something that uh, our creator calls us to do to be mindful of those who have less so a part of that joy it goes back to that diversity that we have uh, there is a brother, Pete Steinow. Yes, I use his whole name, Pete Steinow. He's an older white gentleman, and he has been coming out for about the past, uh, almost uh, about 10 months, close to a year. Yeah, almost almost at a year now. But our paths crossed because I spoke on a panel at the Catholic uh, Catholic Theological Union. I think that's where it was at. And he came up to me afterwards. I think I had mentioned something about uh, bridging the gap and uh, community service. And he says, well, I'm interested. I want to come out. I said, okay, sure. So he came out, uh, I think two weeks later and he's been coming ever since. Now what's special about Pete is, well, I shouldn't say one, one of the special things about Pete is that Pete brings, he makes these muffins and they are delicious and they are all individually wrapped. And they have these great little sayings on them. And I want to let you hear a little bit um, from Pete in his own words about how he started. And um, I want to let you hear a little bit about Pete, his story, how he started and what it means to uh, to give of, of himself in service. OK, I'm standing here with uh, Pete Steinow. You're not officially, you're not unofficially known as the Muffin Man, are you? I'm officially known as the Muffin Man. Officially known as the Muffin Man. So when did you start, when did you start making muffins? Uh, probably, I got serious about it five or six years ago. Well, during the uh, Chewy's campaign for mayor, uh, I used to take, um, three or four times a week I'd take, maybe three, four dozen muffins down to the campaign headquarters to feed the, uh, the volunteers. Um, and at that point, uh, you know, since then, basically, I find two or three progressive candidates that I want to support. Uh, <clears throat> I haven't picked anybody in the mayoral race yet. It's, it's uh, you know, it's too much of a, of a scramble. 
Yeah, it's it's, it's, a, it's a crowded field. Right. Already, and we still we still don't know. It's probably about another ten or fifteen people that are going to be uh, putting a hat in the ring. Um, right now, the one the one politician I am supporting uh, is um, uh, Brian Cisco Lopez, who's running uh, in the twenty fifth ward against uh, Danny Solis. Uh, Danny has been, and that, that's my ward. And Danny's been in that role for about 22 years. My personal reading is, uh, and he was actually, I th- believe, the first head of the Hispanic Caucus in city council. But after 22 years, I think he's kind of mellowed into being a machine guy, and I think it's time for a change. So I'm doing muffins for Brian. Okay. Now, uh, you recently de- delivered some muffins over to the Palmer House. The hotel workers are striking. And I was so surprised because I saw a picture on Instagram. Somebody po- They showed the muffins. And then they also said, uh, they didn't know who you were. They said a guy came and dropped off muffins. And the workers were so, the strikers were so enthused and just really appreciative. And I said, I know. I know who that is. That's me. That's me. I'm actually the... You, some people call me the muffin man. My personal term for myself is the muffineer to the movement. The muffineer to the movement. Right. Uh, I, 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 I've always been, when I was 10 years old, I wanted to be a chef. And partially because my mom was a lousy cook. <laughs> okay. You know, and I kind of, and my dad did some of the cooking. When my dad cooked, it was a good meal. When it, my, so, so I enjoyed cooking. Uh, I actually ended up working uh, in college at some in restaurants for a while, and then about 20 years ago, I and I've been in healthcare most of my professional life. Um, I got laid off from the hospital job I was at. I bought a restaurant and I loved it. I, I but you can't. I worked 100 hours a week and I lost money every every week for 30 for three years. Uh, and finally, wow, wow. Uh, but I, I love to cook. So and, and I'm a, a pretty, pretty crazy, radical, progressive. Uh, so I've been able to combine my love of cooking uh, with uh, with supporting progressive causes and progressive candidates. Now, at this point, with your experience um, as a restaurateur, cooking and then also melding that with politics, do you also find that? That you have people contacting you looking for your support with regard to, you know, bringing out muffins? Uh, occasionally, uh, particularly the people uh, who were involved in the Chewy ca- and Bernie campaigns uh, sometimes will call me and say, gee, you know, we're, we're having some kind of affair. Could you bring muffins? Mm. Okay. Well, keep up the great work. <laughs> uh, and I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing more pictures of the muffins uh, popping up at different uh, okay. rallies it's, and it's nice. To, it's nice to know that there's kind of a full circle that I'm here today with muffins, and yet you saw me yesterday. So that's right. Yeah, this is uh, we're at M- Mashiach Takwa for Bridging the Gaps lunch pad right now, and Pete brings in. He's been bringing muffins in for has it been a year already? Mm, eight or ten months. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. Okay. Thank you. And I just I I want to just comment on the fact that you guys every two weeks for years. Have been providing meals to the community. Uh, it's a it's a, a Muslim group, but that it's a it's a very diverse, largely African American, but but Christian and and everybody in the community 
And and to me, that's real service. The service service shouldn't have a brand. Uh, it should be give, freely given. So service, and one of the, uh, just the last thing, each of my muffins has a progressive quote on it. So glad you mentioned okay. that. Okay. And one is that I like is uh, ser- service is the is the is what we pay we we give service to pay for what has been good for us yeah. uh, and the, and the, my other favorite quote is if if you've been given more than others build a longer table not a higher wall yes all right i think that's a great outro thank you <laughs> thank you Pete. all right radio Slam family we're going to take a short break, but we will be right back. This is Radio Islam on WCEV 1450 AM. A boy born in Joplin, Missouri was fascinated by anything with wheels and a motor. The odds of him going on to fascinate millions with his talent, one in 260,000. The odds of him having 15 career NASCAR victories, one in 1.7 million. The odds of a child being diagnosed with autism, one in 88. I'm Jamie McMurray, and my niece has autism. Learn more at autismspeaks.org signs. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. My name is Sue Smith. I'm 38 and I work at a graphic design company. And the teenage me would tell you, I wouldn't be into drawing and art if it wasn't for Big Brother's Big Sisters. My big sister showed me early on that I could do anything. And to the young me, that meant a lot. My big sister's name is Sheila, and Sheila is the reason that this 8-year-old grows up to have an amazing job as a graphic designer. Whether you donate money or time, you're helping Big Brother's Big Sisters help a child. Start something today at BigBrothersBigSisters.org. Brought to you by Big Brother's Big Sisters and the Ad Council. Radio Islam, the nation's first daily live call-in talk radio show produced by Muslims for the mainstream market. Radio Islam, on the air since 2004 because of your generosity. Radio Islam salutes its most valuable asset, you, our listener. From our producers to our interns, we appreciate your support. Thank you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq al and we're broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM. We're streaming at WCEV1450.com. Remember to keep up with us on social media by following and liking our, liking our pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You'll find us at Radio Islam USA, and be sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get yours at. SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn, Google Play, you'll find us at Radio Islam USA. All right, Radio Islam family. Um, I guess I am on a particular train of thought right now, seeing as how this time next year I'll have uh, two college students. God willing, inshallah. And that puts, a, that puts some things in a different, uh, different perspective, just a different light. 
And it's got me looking at what structures and systems, uh, programs are going to be available uh, for them and their peers and um, make an observation. So we, we look to the government, right, which is our elected officials. And we look to them to develop and to maintain systems, uh, systems that will support the collective growth uh, and the well-being, right, of, of everyone. So one of those systems is found in higher education. Now, we're told, and we tell our children this, I've told my children this, that, that they need an education. They need an education uh, in order to be successful. Uh, and we push we say that this, this is their pathway, and we push science, technology, uh, engineering, math, the STEM, you know, STEM um, uh, subjects. Uh, we could also add health care to that as well. But the growing demand that is found in the, uh, in the STEM fields means that we're going to need individuals that are in these tracks that are able to enter institutions of higher learning, higher learning and devote themselves to becoming masters in their fields. So aside from the projected demand that we see for STEM, uh, there are a host of other professions, uh, plenty of other uh, career paths for which people go to colleges and universities hoping to better their chances for a successful, for a, well, before we get, get into successful, right, stability, you could look at stability as success. Who They go to school so that they can have so the outcome is that they have a, a stable financial future. Now, success or prosperity or accumulation of, of wealth—that's that's that's another that's another uh, facet of it. But for most people, it's simply a matter of knowing that I'm going to be able to provide uh, the basics. You know, I can get everything I need and and some of the stuff that I that I want. And we see education as a pathway uh, to that goal. So when it comes to going to school, um, there's a lot that goes into that, right? It's not always a success, a success story. We hear quite often, uh, and maybe not just here, we may know of, or maybe we are that person who started school and then, you know, had to drop out for, for whatever reason. Um, but this all comes with a price because a part of the whole experience is, is, is money. And for most people, that money is not something that they are able to, that they come up with just on their own. Um, because they're, they're basically, they're, there are three ways that folks pay for, uh, pay for college. Uh, the first is, you know, just out of pocket, what they, you know, what they have, what their families have. Uh, and the second would be uh, grants. And the third comes in the form of student loans. And these loans are guaranteed, for the most part, are guaranteed by the federal government, which means that the the lender is more than happy to give the money because they know they're going to get their money back. And because it's underwritten by the government, which means that if you get a check, the government <laughs> the government is going to get their money. Uh, simple, simple as that. So current data has that approximately 70% of students take out loans of some sort. And that is a tremendously high number. Now, what's important to understand here is that it does not mean that it's just those who come from lower socioeconomic um, 
communities or fallen, you know, fall, they come from families that are below the poverty line or anything like that. Um, as it stands, students at the, the top tier or the most expensive universities or that, that come from families that, um, that are well off, uh, and and versus those who are, as I mentioned, from you know they may be at the poverty line or the working poor or or solid middle class, but everybody across the spectrum at some point they they pretty much everybody from each each group takes out some amount uh, in loans. But the the average, right? And I think. That's what we have to kind of look at is that where do, where do we fall on the just just on this whole this 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 curve what do we all fall at uh, in general so if we're looking back the, the stats that I was looking at was from uh, from 2014 it says there were approximately 1.3 trillion dollars of outstanding student loan debt which affected 44 million borrowers who had on average outstanding loan balances of $37,172. So um, as of this year, 2018, which we are fast, we're working our way through, we, you know, we're in September now, um, the outstanding uh, student loan debt totaled $1.5 trillion. So it went up uh, 0.2, right? So $1.5 trillion. And that's a critical number. If you think about this, $37,172, uh, which is... That's a salary for some folks, uh, and and it's not a static number, right? We we're looking at uh, interest on there as well. So that thirty-seven thousand turns into well over well over thirty-seven thousand. Although, in defense of the the student loan, it being simple interest, uh, at at least it's simple interest. But that's that's not really my point here. But I personally know of people who have loans in the six figures, right? Over $100,000, $200,000. Now, that's a scary thought, particularly if that person, for some reason, well, I should say, if you have a, if you got a loan that's over hundred grand, and you did not complete school, well, that's, that's, that's really, that's, that's a rough, rough reality. Uh, and I would figure on the, on the lower side, 37,000 if if you're at that point I could see folks at that point and and not having finished school and and what does that mean in terms of your ability to pay a loan back what type of jobs you know what is your uh income potential right that's that's all in, that's all in question but the whole thing that kind of pushed this out was um just kind of reflecting back on what's really important or who the important actors are when it comes to our Department of Education, uh, our elected officials. Uh, and and I, I go back to, I've already spilled the beans on it. So it's the Department of Education, that, that secretary that's picked by the uh, president. That's a part, uh, that, you know, he nominates. Uh, and that person plays a pivotal role in managing a system that has tremendous impact tremendous impact on every sector of our economy. I mean, from healthcare workers and finance, education, law enforcement, etc. Because all of these people in these fields, they go to some uh, institution of higher learning in order to get the knowledge, to get the experience, um, in order for them to be able to enter the fields that they're in. So 
education policy, lending, all these, these have, uh, they're going to have a tremendous impact on a person's ability to have a successful or just even a stable financial future. So I was listening to, and I think this would be a really good, uh, just a reminder of how important this is because the secretary, education secretary that we have, uh, Betsy DeVos, who is uh, currently, and we may get into this uh, a little bit later, but she's currently siding with the lenders when it comes to protecting students from uh, from fraudulent, from being defrauded by institutions of higher learning. Um, prime example, Trump University. If you all remember Trump University, uh, the President Donald Trump, uh, who had to pay a $25 million fine uh, for basically for defrauding students because they thought they were getting one thing, found out they were getting nothing. So we want to play a bit of this, um, a bit of the confirmation hearing where Senator Elizabeth Warren is speaking to, at this point, nominee Betsy DeVos. Experience in K-12 public schools. But I'd like to ask you about your qualifications for leading the nation on higher education. The Department of Education is in charge of making sure that the $150 billion that we invest in students each year gets into the right hands and that students have the support they need to be able to pay back their student loans. The Secretary of Education is essentially responsible for managing a trillion-dollar student loan bank and distributing $30 billion in Pell Grants to students each year. The financial futures of an entire generation of young people depend on your department getting that right. Now, Mrs. DeVos, do you have any direct experience in running a bank? Senator, I do not. Uh-huh. Do you have you ever managed or overseen a trillion-dollar loan program? I have not. How about a billion-dollar loan program? I have not. Okay, so no experience in managing a program like this. How about participating in one? I think it's important for the person who is in charge of our financial aid programs to understand what it's like for students and their families who are struggling to pay for college. Mrs. DeVos, have you ever taken out a student loan from the federal government to help pay for college? I have not. Uh, have any of your children had to borrow money in order to go to college? They have been fortunate not to. Uh-huh. Have you had any personal experience with the Pell Grant? Uh, not personal experience, but certainly friends and um, students with whom I've worked. So you have, have no personal experience with college financial aid or management of higher education. Mrs. DeVos, then let's start with the basics. Do you expecting federal taxpayer dollars from waste, fraud, and abuse? Absolutely. Oh, good. So do I. Because now we all know that President-elect Trump's experience with higher education was to create a fake university, which resulted in his paying a $25 million to students that he cheated. So I'm curious about how the Trump administration would protect against waste, fraud, and abuse at similar for-profit colleges. So here's my question. How do you plan to protect taxpayer dollars from waste, fraud, and abuse by colleges that take in millions of dollars in federal student aid? Senator, um, if confirmed, I will certainly be very vigilant. Yeah, I'm asking people. how. 
How are you going to do that? You said you're committed. The individuals with whom I work in the department will ensure that federal monies are used properly and appropriately, and I will look forward to working so, with so you. So you're going to subcontract making sure that what happened with uh, universities that cheat students doesn't happen anymore? No, I didn't uh, say You're going to give that to someone else to do? I just want to know what your ideas are for making sure we don't have problems with waste, fraud, and abuse. I, I want to make sure we don't have problems with that as well. And well, if confirmed, I will work diligently to ensure that we are addressing any of those issues. Well, let me make a suggestion on this. It actually turns out that there are a whole group of rules that are already written and are there, and all you have to do is enforce them. So what I want to know is, will you commit to enforcing these rules to ensure that no career college receives federal funds unless they can prove that they are actually preparing their students for gainful employment and not cheating them? Senator, I will commit to ensuring that institutions which receive federal funds are actually serving their students well. And, and so you will enforce the gainful employment rule to make sure that these career colleges are not cheating students? Uh, we will certainly review that rule. You'll and review see it? That, you and, will not and commit to enforce it, it? And see that it is uh, actually... Well, things have not changed much at all. Um, she is she is still unprepared. I can't imagine, I cannot imagine being able to show up to an interview and have the interviewer ask me, do you know how to do this? And I replied, no, I do not. Well, do you know how to do this? Uh, no, I do not. Well, do you know how to do this? Uh, no, no, I don't, I do not. And still have the, the smugness, still have the, the idea in my head that I have any possibility of getting the job. Now, of course, this just speaks to, uh, this speaks to just the, the, the laughable uh, nature of, of the system. But at the very least, the questions were asked. Uh, and in asking those questions, we see who we have at the helm of an extremely important uh, extremely important um, uh, part of our of our part of our government. Now, what I also noticed in there is not so much the questions that she did not have answers to; it's the questions Senator Warren didn't ask the right questions. She should have asked her, "Do you have questions with for-profit education?" And her answer would have been uh, a resounding yes. But the big thing for me, just as a as a parent of two high school seniors who will be going on, uh, inshallah, to, um, to, to college next year, is what are the assurances that are given? What are the protections that are given that are uh, in place for students to make sure that they are not being defrauded? And that was, of course, a wonderful example that she gave. I mean, she, she had to give, she had to talk about uh, Trump in that moment. $25 million because he's defrauded students. What are you going to do to make sure that that doesn't happen? Now, of course, being a person who does not have a background in education, uh, who does not have a background in dealing with uh, uh, lending on the scale that the Department of Education does, 
she's not able to adequately answer those questions. But I want to go back into, I'm going to bring us up to date now. So these are the questions that, that were asked during a confirmation hearing. And now we are dealing with the very same issues that she had to speak to then. How are you going to protect students? What are you going to do to make sure that they are not the victims of predatory lending? What are you going to do to make sure that there is there is basically there's some truth in advertising so that if a person goes to school to get a go to get a degree, to get a certificate, uh, that it is actually a marketable skill, that it's a marketable degree, that they're not just sitting in school for a year, for uh, two years, for four years, for however long, only to come out and find out that the skills that they thought they thought they had were of, actu- of, of no use, that there's no economic gain involved, but in fact they're on a hook for thousands and thousands of dollars. So recently, recently, uh, there was, matter of fact, this just a couple of months ago uh, in July, Betsy DeVos, she proposed to cut loan forgiveness for defrauded students. Now, we're talking about, we're talking about those people who, and I want to put this in a little, little bit of context. If you've ever seen those in the Chicago area and uh, wherever you are, you, you may have these types of schools in, in your area where they are private, they are they're one-year programs, and they're often things like uh, for to, to become a CNA or to become an electrical technician, right? Because if you're in a union town, they can't, they won't come out and call you an, an electrician because these, uh, to be an electrician, generally if it's, it's a union town, you're talking about a five-year, four-year apprenticeship. Uh, and a lot of schooling and, uh, you know, it's, it's a different ballgame. But they, they, they present these fields, these programs, as doorways into fields. And they say that, you know, you come in, you, you get your, uh, you pay your money, and you get the training, and then you go out, and now you're ready to get a job, only to find out that, um, to find out that what you have is not sufficient for the job. And I'm not putting any particular school. I don't know if I said a school name or not, so I hope I didn't because I'm not trying to libel anybody. But the fact is that we have a, there is a a substantial for-profit uh, sector of education. And they generally run one-year, 18-month, sometimes six-month uh, programs. And... And, and and a lot of times they're, they're quite costly. So for those types of institutions in particular where people who are looking for some financial stability, they're looking for all the things that come with uh, college education. They're looking for all the things that, that, uh, things that come with um, uh, being accredited, with having, um, with having credentials. They're looking for access. They're looking for, for the economic uh, payout. And they don't they don't get it. So these are the people who are first and foremost, uh, they are in line and should be able to seek some type of redress for being defrauded. And she, as the person who is the that the highest education official, you know, in the land who runs the federal government's program, is proposing to cut loan forgiveness for defrauded students. So I'm going to read a little bit of this. 
of this article, which kind of details. It's pretty short. So it says, uh, Education Secretary Betsy DeVos proposed changes to the department's loan forgiveness program that will make it harder for students who have been defrauded by the universities to receive loan forgiveness. The program was expanded under the Obama administration, but DeVos announced the changes just before Obama's policies were set to go into effect. Under the new policy, student borrowers will have to prove that they are financially distressed or prove that their university intentionally misled them in order to receive loan forgiveness. This is according to a New York Times report. Schools will also have a chance to defend themselves against fraud claims under this new policy, and they'll be allowed to have students sign arbitration agreements barring them from suing the university. So it's already set up in favor of of who is it is set up in favor of the lender it's not you're not coming to the aid of the one who is claiming that they've been defrauded so the obama era policies which would have provided much wider protections for students were finalized after two for-profit universities corinthian colleges and itt technical institute for those of you who are in the chicago area uh, area you would recognize that last one uh, were found to have misled their students with false advertisement, a- advertisements leading them to take out loans for an invaluable education before shutting down in 2015 and 2016. So it took out loans for an invaluable, not not that you can't assign a value, but uh, has no value. So the current U.S. Department of Education argues that while students should be protected from fraud, they should also consider their options when selecting a university. Post-secondary students are adults. This is in quotes. Post-secondary students are adults who can be reasonably expected to make informed decisions if they have access to relevant and reliable data about program outcomes, said the department. This is according to an ABC News report. Now, I'm going to just interject here. That is an extremely privileged position uh, to take. Extremely, and why do I say uh, privileged? It is privileged in that there's an assumption. There's an assumption of agency on behalf of whoever wrote this this absolute nonsense. Yeah, there's an assumption of, of agency. And by that I mean an ability to 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 uh to look at their current circumstances and see what is available to them and and make a decision on what on what is going to move them closer towards their goal of stability and success and uh, financial empowerment, social mobility. There's an assumption that that exists already for those people who are, who who go into, uh, who who sign these loan agreements, who take out loans and enter these schools. Now understand that the people that who are really standing with DeVos on this uh, proposal, it's not your, it's not your public universities. No. That's not who it is. It is the for-profit. It is a for-profit education sector. It's the it's the former ITT technical institutes and Corinthian colleges, the ones who have already been found to have misled their students through false advertisements, through playing upon the um, playing upon. I, I, I would almost say playing upon. They're playing upon the insecurities. They're playing upon the uh, the desires that 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 we all have for stability, for success, 
but they're playing upon them with people who who may not have a pathway. They don't have a roadmap. They don't really know how to get there, but the advertisements are there and they're saying, come here. And if you come here, we'll help you get where you're trying to go. If you come here and you pay your money, we'll teach you, we'll, we'll give you uh, we'll give you credentials and you'll be able to go out and make money only to find out that you have been suckered. So from that type of position, for them to say that post-secondary students, that these are adults who can reasonably be expected to make informed decisions, there's a lot of, there's a lot of privilege there. There's, there are a lot of assumptions there. And these types of institutions these for-profit institutions, many of them would not exist if it were not for for the lack of uh, access that others that, that people find themselves in, where people find themselves coming into a system, into a system, or their 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 reality says that I don't have four years to devote uh, to studies. I can probably, because of where I'm at right now, I can give you six months. And I'm looking for some type of a positive change uh, in my life. And then to find out uh, that they have nothing, that they've been they've been had. And then on top of that, to find out that they don't have any means of redress. They don't have any means to hold those folks accountable for selling them a dream. So she goes on to say, says, while students should have protections from predatory practices, schools and taxpayers should also be treated fairly as well. Now, under the previous rules, all one had to do was raise his or her hands to be entitled to so-called free money. That's how she sees this. And I bring your attention back to the question that Senator Warren asked her, have you ever had to take out a loan? Have your children had to take out loans? And the answer is, is no in both cases. So this is a reality that you are completely, that is completely foreign to you. And for her to say, well, I have friends who've had to take out loans. I've had... Uh, okay, yeah. You know, miss miss me with that. But this is somebody who is not in touch with the the average American. She's not in touch with people who have to make decisions that are based on the moment, who are trying to be forward thinking, who may not have four years, but they say I can I can invest a year, I can sacrifice, I can struggle for a year. But they do that. They do that with the expectation that their sacrifice is going to be met with some success, that they're getting something in return. And when that doesn't happen, we don't expect those people that we have put into office or the people that we put into office, we don't expect them to select people that are going to run counter to what is uh, to our own protections, what is best for us. So... I'm going to finish with this. So, as I said, the proposed changes have been championed by those in the for-profit education sector, but criticized by advocates for student borrowers. ABC reports the changes would save an estimated $13 billion over the next decade compared to the Obama administration's policies, primarily through cutting loan relief. The department says it has received more than 100,000 student borrower defense claims in the past three years, and it closes with, the Department of Education is turning a blind eye to widespread fraud and abuse at for-profit schools that left thousands of students in debt without a meaningful education. 
Suzanne Martindale, a senior attorney for Consumer Union, uh, told Times, instead of helping defrauded students cancel their debts and move on with their lives, these proposed rules would shield poor-performing schools from being held accountable for their misconduct. And we don't elect people, nor do we look to our, our government to empower those who disempower us as citizens. So that is where we are. Um, I encourage you to keep an eye, uh, keep an eye on this because uh, Betsy DeVos, she, she has been who she was from the first day of her confirmation. Uh, and she's further, and I'll end with this, this, this last piece. This is important to share. Uh, she has also made it very clear that she is on the side of the loan companies. Uh, recently, uh, with regard to states, individual states, taking on, uh, through the attorney generals, taking on um, the loan companies, she has actually stepped in, Right? She has stepped in to make sure that that doesn't that it does not happen, uh, and this is just a a quick 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 piece. It says uh, state attorneys uh, generals have led the charge to hold loan services uh, accountable for practices that hurt consumers. The loan companies, by contrast, have argued that because they are hired directly by the U.S. government to manage loan repayment for roughly forty million borrowers, they shouldn't be subject to additional state laws aimed at protecting those borrowers. So we know that that is a big issue as far as states' rights are concerned, uh, and we can expect much more back and forth on this. Uh, Betsy DeVos, her her uh, retort was that they're trying to make sure that there is one system in place that can deal with um, any type of issues that come up through the loan process. But she has already, once again, already made it really clear. And this is disturbing for me, and I'm sure it's disturbing for many people who are uh, who are getting ready to go into uh, school that find themselves having to sign on the, on the dotted line. Now, if you haven't had to do that, if you've managed to make it through uh, college without having to uh, incur any loans, consider yourselves uh, consider yourself blessed. Uh, you're extremely fortunate. But as I mentioned earlier, for the majority of folks, for the 70% of people that attend uh, colleges and universities, uh, any type of higher ed, who are in a position they have to take out loans. And that loan, those loans come with a big price. And what we're, what we should be demanding, we should be demanding that we have people that are going to, uh, people and agencies, uh, elected officials that are willing to step up uh, and stand up for us and hold these companies accountable uh, to make sure that they are not defrauding, that they are not taking advantage of those who don't have, they don't have the kind of access that these big companies do. All right? We don't all have uh, lawyers on retainer. Right? This is not the world that most, that most of us live in. Really depressing, really depressing. Okay, we're finished being depressed. Um... So, folks, uh, that is it. That's it. Uh, we're, we'll keep an eye on it. You keep an eye on it. Let us know if uh, anything comes up that we, we need to bring back up. As a matter of fact, we need to have somebody on uh, that, is, that is in education policy to speak to this um, a little more. 
uh, yeah, a little bit more. So I think we're, we're going to work on doing that as well. All right, folks, we are going to get out of here. We want to thank our engineers over at WCEV. We thank our engineer in studio, the impressive one, Ibrahim Beg. I'm your host and producer, Tariq Alamine. Our executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid. Remind you that the views expressed by the host and our guests are theirs and not to be taken as a representation of Sound Vision Foundation. And with that, we're going to leave you as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Thank you.